Well, here's a question to start us off. What stops you? What stops you from doing the things you want to do, doing the things you know are good? What gets in the way? There's a lot of different answers to that question. One of the more common ones is fear. I can think of my own life, and I've, I mean, we're afraid of lots of things, but I can think of three of the bigger fears in my life, afraid of heights, afraid of public speaking, and afraid of failure. And somewhere along the line with heights, I realized that there's something about, you know, exposure therapy. You can, you can lessen that fear by facing it every once in a while. And so as a teenager, I tried diving lessons. <laughs> and the first time that I went to diving lessons, um, before we had done anything, the teacher took us up to, what's the highest board? Is it 10 meters? That, like it doesn't bounce anymore and most of the time it's closed. And, they, and the teacher said, he said, well, you have to go to the edge. You can't jump. None of you are allowed to jump, but you have to go look over the edge. I had to crawl to get to the edge. <laughs> um, public speaking, I still get butterflies before I come up here to preach. It's much better than it used to be. I've never been able to face failure that way and just like, I'm just going to fail a whole bunch and get used to it. It happens. It's happened. It's getting better. But it's not the same as like, well, I can go up someplace high and look at it, right? And I can speak in front of people and I'm not going to purposefully cause problems so that I'm not afraid of failure. But that's just one answer, right? Fear is a common answer. Uh, busyness is a common answer. Um, some of the answers are less flattering, like laziness, for example, or, you know, I know this is good, but I'd really rather do something else. We're in our series right now. We're doing Encountering Jesus. And behind this series, what we've been talking about are discipleship and evangelism. And the passage that we're looking at today, the woman at the well in John chapter 4, walks us through a ton of barriers to evangelism things that stop us from sharing the good news. They're all over this passage. And that's, we're going to walk through these, this scripture, and that's what we're going to be looking at. Because one thing after another gets in the way. And, it, and, and Jesus, in this encounter, highlights a number of the ways that we get through or past or over or under, or however you want to picture it, these barriers that are, that are quite common, and they're not all easy, um, but they are all surmountable in the power of God. And so that's where we're going to go today. Now, it's a really long passage, this story, and so I'm not going to have us stand while we read all 42 verses. I'm just going to read the beginning, but I am going to have us stand for that. So please stand with me for the Word of God. We do this every Sunday to honor the Word, to participate together, and to remember that the Word of the Lord is the best thing you hear each morning when you come here. Um, and we're going to read about the first 10 verses of this story. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. 
How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The word of the Lord, let's pray together. God, we do come before you this morning and ask that you would speak through your word. Open our ears, our eyes, and our hearts to your spirit among us this morning. Teach us and call us, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. You may be seated. Just to give you an overview of the rest of this story, the conversation continues. Jesus has said, you know, he would have, I would have given you living water, and she says, well, who are you to give me living water? Jacob lived here, and he, he dug a well. That's how he had to get water. He had to go deep underground. What are you going to do? And, and he responds, and he explains. He says, everyone who drinks of this water from this well will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of my water will never thirst, and that water will spring up in them to eternal life. And she says, well, yeah, I will have some magical water that ends thirst forever. Thank you. Give me some of this. And, um, and he says, go get your husband. And this is where the conversation gets messy because she doesn't have a husband. And he says, yeah, that you've had five husbands and the man you're living with right now is not your husband. And then they talk about worship and it becomes quite clear that Jesus is, is someone amazing. And by the end, he's saying to her, I am the Messiah. Um, and then, really quickly, his disciples return, and as they're returning, she's leaving to go back to town to tell everybody about what's happened. So his disciples come back, and they're kind of like, what are you doing, Jesus? You don't do this, and we'll, we'll talk about that. And she's running into town saying, you need to come meet this guy. He told me everything about my life. He might, he might be the Messiah. And the whole town comes out to see Jesus, and they beg him to stay. And he stays for a few days, and he teaches them. And when he leaves, the people of the town turn to the woman who met Jesus first, and they say, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man is the Savior of the world. And so it's a great story with a great ending, but it takes a lot to get there. So we jump back to the beginning. At the beginning of this story, Jesus and his disciples have journeyed and they're, they're in the middle of a, of a decently long journey, and it's the middle of a hot day. It's noon, and Jesus is tired. And his disciples head into town to get food, but he kind of slumps down beside a well. And apparently, he's so tired that he can't even get his own water, right? Like, it's not like you're not allowed to get your own water. It's not like that's against the rules or anything. He's just tired. He's just wiped right? It's been a long day, um, and it's hot. And so he sits down to rest, and his disciples head into town to get some food. Um, why they didn't get him some water first, I'm not sure. Maybe he just didn't ask them yet. He wasn't even talking. So he's waiting there, and this woman comes up, and it's a Samaritan woman. And Jesus does the unthinkable. Anyone in his day hearing or reading this story when Jesus turns to this woman and says, will you give me a drink? It's like, oh, what did he just do? <laughs> this is not okay. And I know we don't live in this world that Jesus lived in. Um, for Jesus, men don't speak to women like this. Irregardless of ethnicity, 
and, and race and position in society. You just don't do this. Unless this woman is part of your household, you stay away. But it's worse than that because this, just, this isn't just a woman, right? That's bad enough, sorry. <laughs> it's the culture. It's, 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 not, it's not right, and Jesus clearly stands against it, but it was the world he lives in, lived in. She's not just a woman, though. She's a Samaritan. And it's hard for us to understand how bad that is. Samaritans for Jews were viewed as little better than vermin. Like there was real race hatred between Jews and Samaritans at this time in the Middle East. Um, they, were, they were some of the worst of the worst. There's a reason that when Jesus tells the parable about someone acting neighborly and he wants to shock them, he says a Samaritan comes along and helps this poor beaten, robbed Jew, because that's unheard of. Like, there's no such thing as a good Samaritan, as a neighborly Samaritan. And that's just a story. This is real life, right? Jesus is really talking to a real Samaritan woman, and she gets it. She understands that this is absurd. She's as shocked as everyone reading this. You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. What are you doing? Well, what he's doing is facing two of the most common barriers towards us sharing the good news of Jesus. The first is that we often feel like we have to be in the right state. I don't know what the right word is for that. We have to be, we have to be ready, and it's got to be at an event, and it's got to be planned, and it's got to be prepared Jesus is sitting beside a well so tired he hasn't managed to draw his own water and he's still going to tell her the good news. Like This is, not, this is just day-to-day life. He's just out on the road traveling. He is not in a good condition. And yet here is an opportunity for him to share the good news. And so he takes it. And later on in this passage, he explains why his disciples come back and they try to get him to eat. And they try to get him to drink, and he says, no, I'm not hungry. And they're amazed because they've all been out walking for a long time. Of course you're hungry. And and they think, somebody must have brought him food. And Jesus says, my food is to do the will of my Father. And he's speaking about this experience, and I think we've probably all had it, where when you get into something that matters to you, you do forget about some of the physical needs. I see some of you nodding. You've been there. You've been at a good day at work and forgotten to eat lunch, and you didn't even notice it till later, right? Um, you've been in a state where, you know, it, maybe as parents you've run into this, where you're like, oh my goodness, I'm so tired, I'm just done, and then one of your kids throws up, and you're, you're on, you're ready to go, right? Like, it didn't matter that a minute ago you were feeling like you could, didn't have anything left. When something important came up, you give it the more that you've got. And not only that, part of the deeper thing going on here with Jesus is that it's not just our strength. It's the strength of God with us. And so we don't need to be in the perfect state to share Jesus. We don't need to be. It can be in day-to-day life. It can be when we're not at our best, and we can still tell people the good news. The second barrier Jesus is facing is that and we do this, I do this, we all do this, we look at people and we judge how they're going to respond. Oh, now that is not somebody who's going to respond to the good news of Jesus. Just just leave them alone, right? Um, And anybody 
the disciples included in this passage, who was walking with Jesus in this day, would have looked at the Samaritan woman and said, no way. Samaritans are heretics. They're evil. They're, they worship idols. Um, they would never listen to a Jew, male or female. They just wouldn't hear it. There's too much prejudice. There's too much racism. It's not going to happen, right? And we can do this too. We can look at people and we can assume that they're going to respond in a certain way, but we don't know. We don't know until we actually speak and give them the opportunity. One of the things that I find myself often saying just in ministry is that I won't say no for somebody. Um, If somebody brings up a name and they're like, they would be really good at that, often the first thought I have is yes, but there's no way they're going to do it. They're too busy. There's too many things going on, et cetera, et cetera. And And I might be right, but I don't get to say no for them. They need to hear that opportunity for themselves and say yes or no for themselves. And the same thing is true as we share the good news of Jesus. We don't get to say no for people. Sometimes we do that just by not ever sharing the good news. But then that's on us, not on them. They haven't been given the choice to respond to Jesus and decided to walk away. We decided to walk away. And that's not okay. And Jesus doesn't do that here. He doesn't let that prejudice stop him. He speaks to her. And he he speaks to her in a way that is a little bit confusing, (laughs) if we're honest. Um, Living water is a dense thing to say. Now, in English, we don't catch this. But living water can mean... I think it's four different things. Yes, it is. Four different things. Living water is bubbling fresh spring water, okay? So there's a, there's a way of speaking about water. It's like saying fresh water. There's, there's stagnant well water here in Jacob's well. But if you knew who I was, you could have asked, and I would have given you fresh water. And this is clearly how the woman hears him. But that's only one layer of meaning. Living water is also the life-giving stream that the prophets promised that would bubble up and flow down into the desert and create life where there had been death. The word of God, the Torah, the law, is described as living water a number of times in the Old Testament. And the spirit of God himself is described as living water. So which one does Jesus mean, right? He means the last ones, that he is himself the word of God. And that if she had asked, he would have given her the Spirit of God, which would well up inside of her to eternal life. She only understands the first layer, though. And this is another one of those barriers, which is when we start talking about Jesus, people have assumptions. They have thoughts already. There's nobody you talk to. Well, maybe there's somebody out there. But there are very few people you can talk to who, when you say the name of Jesus, don't have some kind of preconception or understanding, or thought about the name of Jesus. Of course they do. And often, it's negative, right? That's the culture we inhabit right now, where a lot of the people that you run into day in and day out have an immediate negative reaction to church, Christianity, faith, religion, Jesus. Pick your particular label. But this, too, doesn't need to stop us. It doesn't stop Jesus. It's something you just face it, and you meet people in that place, right? And she responds that way. She says, 
look, you have nothing to draw with. The water is deep. Where are you getting this living water? You can't do what you say you're going to do, sir, you weird Jewish man, you. There's just no way. Like, are you, Jacob, Jacob, the great forefather Jacob lived here, and he gave us this well. So who are you that you can do better than that, right? And that's a lot of the times the, the substance of the response we get when we try to talk about Jesus. Like, who is Jesus? What does he matter to me today, right? What difference, like, yeah, okay, there's a Bible about him, but mostly it's just weird stories that aren't true and and there's nothing about it today that matters. Um, Jesus continues the conversation, though. He pushes onwards with his claims. Oh, there we go. And, and he makes them even more incredible. He says, everyone who drinks this water from this well here right now, they'll be thirsty again. You know that. You come out here every day at noon, avoiding the crowds that come at sunrise and sunset in the cool of the morning and the evening. Some reason you come out here at noon and you have to do this every day because you're always thirsty. But if you drink from the water I have, you'll never thirst again. Now, this continues to sound ridiculous. It really does. Um, and this too is often true when we talk about the good news. Some of the claims Jesus makes, they're just too good to be true. They're absurd. And this is no different. But it's also really desirable. I mean, who doesn't want water like that? Who doesn't want life abundant? Who doesn't want to walk in the light of God with him guiding and speaking and blessing and protecting and walking with you into trial? And like, it's, it's good things. Um, but is it real? Right? That's the question. And that's the question this woman asks. She says, okay, give me the water, right? And you start, I, I don't know what she's thinking. Maybe she's thinking this is some kind of con, but what, what do I have to lose, right? Like if he gives me water and I still thirst again tomorrow, I still got water today. He's not asking me for gold. He's just telling me he can give it to me. Um, so she says, give it to me. Give me this water so I don't have to keep coming to this well and drawing water again and again. And Jesus' response hits the next barrier that we often face. He says to her, go and get your husband. Now, this is an odd thing for him to say. Why does she need to go and get her husband? Can't he just give her the water? Um, but Jesus isn't speaking this because it's a requirement. Like, look, you can only receive the Spirit of God as a married couple. So go get your husband, and then together I will anoint you. No, that's not what he's saying. He is drawing her into the light. And this happens when we encounter Jesus. This happens to us as disciples and believers, but it also happens to people when we share the gospel, which is that you are called into the light, and part of that is the revelation of brokenness in your life. You have to face those things. That's what Jesus asks of us, and this has been very clear in each of the stories that we've walked through so far. She doesn't want to, she says, I have no husband. She's telling the technical truth without telling the whole story. And Jesus now puts his thumb on the sore spot in her life. He says, that's true. You don't have a husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands. And the man you're with now is not 
your husband. So what you have said is quite true. He, he acknowledges the fact that she's speaking the truth while not actually dealing with what he's trying to bring to the surface. And we don't know what's going on with this woman. We don't know why she's had five husbands and why she's living with somebody right now who isn't her husband. It's easy to conjure up a scenario, um, and, and they tend to fall on one of two extremes. Here's a woman hard used by life, rejected again and again and again, multiple failures, year by year, accumulating scars in mind and perhaps body as well. For her to be a woman is to be a victim. To be near a man is to be in danger, and so she is wary. Right? We can tell that kind of extreme story, and maybe it's true. There's the other extreme that you sometimes hear. Here's a woman on the hunt, flirting even with the Jew. She's used up five men. She sees women as, men as opportunities, access to power in a society that won't give it to her for herself. And when they no longer serve her purposes, she moves on. Right? But again, who knows? We don't know. And Jesus, Jesus doesn't push into that. He recognizes that this is the place of her wounding. Because whatever her story is, this is where there is pain. And this is part of what is difficult in calling people to Jesus, but also in walking with him ourselves. We sometimes, when we're talking about sharing the gospel, and I've heard teachers and preachers teach this, we feel like we have to make people feel guilty, like they're sinners, and they need to know they're sinners, and they really need to feel that they're sinners. And um, look, that's not our job. The Holy Spirit convicts people of sin, not us. Most of the people that I have met in my life, they know they're broken. They may be hiding that. They may be putting up a really good front. They may even have convinced themselves, and we do this as Christians too, that, that they've got it under control. Yes, I'm not perfect, and life isn't the way that I want it to be, but I, you know, I got the mess boxed up, and I'm good. But they know it's there. You don't need to tell them that. And Jesus isn't bringing this up because he wants her to feel bad. He's bringing this up because he wants her to be free. And that's what we get to do when we walk with people. We don't need to trap them in guilt and shame and condemnation. There's no condemnation in Jesus. There's freedom. But freedom doesn't come if you won't step into the light. And so when you are inviting someone into the light of Jesus, you're inviting them to be free. And that's a good thing. That's an opportunity rather than a barrier. And now that Jesus has brought this to the light, the woman responds quite admirably. And now we may miss this, though, because culturally and contextually, we maybe don't understand. And I've heard people talk about what the woman says as if this is a dodge. Like, he brought up a really hard subject, my sin, and I'm going to step back from talking about my sin, and I'm going to talk about a theological quandary, because that's way easier to deal with. And we do dodge things sometimes, but that's not what she's doing. She says, sir, I can see that you are a prophet. So first of all, she acknowledges the role that he's playing. And the role of a prophet has always been to speak the unseen truth, to reveal the sin that sin itself tries to hide, but also to reveal the work of God that is often missed, right? Prophets' roles primarily are to pull back the veil on the present, 
to bring to light that which has been hidden in darkness. We often think about prophets' primary role as speaking the future, and they do do that sometimes, but it's not their main task. You think about the prophet, I'm going to mess up the names, the prophet Samuel with, with King Saul, where his job is constantly to speak to Saul and say, this is what you've done, and this is what's going on, and this is what the Lord has asked you. You think about the prophet Nathan with David, who confronts him over his sin with Bathsheba and then speaks the word of the Lord in terms of what God is going to do about this. You think about all the rest of the prophets. Most of the time what they're talking about is what's happening right now. Israel, you're sinning. And you're, you're drawing the punishment of God upon yourself. Um, know that this punishment won't last forever, but in the meantime, this is how you need to live. right? And so on and so forth. And she knows this. So when he speaks like this, he says, I, she says, I see you're a prophet. You're doing what prophets have always done. But there's always a second half to the prophetic message. There's, this is where things have gone terribly wrong, and there's, here's what you need to do to find the mercy of God. Now, often throughout history, the nation of Israel has not responded to the second half of that message. They've not walked in repentance or done the things that God has called them to do. But that part of the message is always there. And that's what the woman is looking for here. That's why she asks this question. She's not engaging a theological quandary. She wants to know what she's supposed to do with her sin now. You're the prophet. You tell me. Where do I go to worship? And what we miss here is that for us, worship usually just means song. But a key component of worship all throughout the life of the nation of Israel, and today too, is atonement, is confession and repentance and being covered over and accepted by God and knowing that you are forgiven. We celebrate communion once a month, and that's one of the big pieces when we do that, is remembering that our sins have been paid for on the cross, that Jesus Christ has done away with them, and that we can enter the presence of God with confidence because of what he's done. Well, she doesn't have all of that. She lives in a time where the system of worship is based around regular sacrifices to deal with your sin. And the question she's asking is at the heart of Jewish-Samaritan relationships. Where do we properly go and deal with our sin? At the temple or on the mountain? Tell me what I'm supposed to do now, Jesus. And he responds. He doesn't, he doesn't act like she's dodging the question. He doesn't try to dig his thumb into that sin. He tells her what she needs to do to deal with this. He says, A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. In other words, things are changing, and the day is upon you that has been promised by the prophets. You speak of me as a prophet. You say that you're clearly a prophet. What do I do with this? Well, let me tell you as a prophet that things have changed, and the Spirit of God is coming, and it's not going to be about where you do this, and it's not even going to be about offering sacrifices. It's going to be about accepting and inviting the Spirit of God into your life and then stepping into the light and worshiping God there. That's what it's going to be about. Now, this answer amazes the woman. 
because this is messianic talk. To talk about the coming of the Spirit and worshiping God in this new way, this is what the prophets have all said. There's going to be a day when the Messiah comes and it all changes and the law is written on your heart and you get a heart of flesh and the Spirit of God fills you up and you get cleansed with water. It's that same combination that was last week with Nicodemus of water and spirit. And she says, I know the Messiah is coming. And she's, you can kind of, I feel like she's so hopeful in this moment and yet so hesitant. I know the Messiah is coming and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And there's this subtext, kind of like you're doing right now, baby. And Jesus doesn't leave her hanging. He hears the hope and he bridges over the hesitation. He says, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. It's the first time in the Gospel of John that he declares himself the Messiah. And he does it to a Samaritan woman alone at a well in the middle of the heat of the day. A woman who, for whatever reason, has been married five times and is currently living with a man out of wedlock. She's not sinless and she knows it. And yet she receives this revelation. It's an amazing moment. And she does with it what she's supposed to. The disciples come back, and the woman rushes back to town. Now, this is another one of those places where we have a barrier to sharing the gospel, which is that sometimes we have the impression that to do this, you've got to be really good at it. You've got to be professional. You've got to know it backwards and forwards and be able to answer all the questions Look, the most qualified people to share, the, share Jesus in this story are the disciples. And they just went into the town and came back without doing that at all. Not only that, when they return, they are surprised, they are shocked to find him speaking with this woman. Now, they won't confront him about it because he's their rabbi and they're the disciples and they don't have a right to do that. Um, so they're just going to try to ignore it, right? Just, rabbi, let, just eat something. You know, you must, you must be hungrier than we thought for you to be talking to this woman. <laughs> Maybe you got sunstroke. We'll help you. Um, they're just going to ignore what has happened. And Jesus confronts them on this. He tells them about this food is to do the work of God. And then he says, unbidden, right? He says, don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may be glad together. Even now, who right now in this story is reaping? It's the woman who's rushed back to town a few verses earlier. Leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. She's still hesitant. She doesn't say, this is the Messiah. She says, could this be? the Messiah, but that's okay, that's enough. She's still inviting them to see Jesus. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life. The Samaritan woman is doing this. So, this, and so then 37, thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. There's a deep irony in this story that the disciples are not doing what they have been sent to do. They don't get it yet. They will. 
and they're going to plant the church, and it's going to be awesome. But it takes them a long time. Whereas the Samaritan woman, it's like she hasn't even walked with Jesus for a full day, and she's an effective evangelist already. She heads into town, and many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And this is another one of those places where we run into a barrier to evangelism, which is some of us don't think our stories are very good. This woman didn't have much of a story. I ran into this guy at the well, and he knew stuff about me. Come meet him. That's all she could say. He claims to be the Messiah. I think he might be, because he knows a lot of stuff, right? But that was enough. She goes back there excitedly to tell them about Jesus, and they come out to see. And Jesus spends more time in this little town in Samaria than he does in most of the towns in Galilee that keep chasing him out, that keep running him out of town because the Pharisees want him gone and because people know him and know his siblings and think, who are you to talk to us like this? And here he spends several days, and by the end of the story, they're saying, because of his words, many more became believers. Oops, sorry. And they turn to the woman and they say, we've heard for ourselves and we know, we know that this man is a savior of the world. I can't imagine being that woman and how excited you would be at the end of that story. Her town would have been completely changed. All because of one conversation at a well. Because neither Jesus nor this woman allowed the barriers that could have stopped them from doing so. She goes into town, and she knows her sin. She stepped into the light. She knows who Jesus is, even though she won't quite proclaim it yet, instead asking a question. And she knows what he offers, living water, the Spirit of God springing up into eternal life. And that's enough. And I'm pretty sure every one of us in the room knows and has those three things, if not much, much more. So what I want to challenge you to do is to think about the people in your life, two things. Think about the people in your life who don't know Jesus, that you'd like them to. We're going to have a time of prayer for you to pray over them. But also think about your day-to-day. What stops you from sharing the good news of Jesus? And face it honestly. It's not about shame and it's not about guilt. It's about Jesus meeting you in that place and giving you opportunities. And he will. And so my second challenge is for you to ask for that. And that's a kind of dangerous prayer because God tends to answer those prayers. If you ask him for opportunities to share the good news, you're going to get them. Um, And then the question becomes, are you going to take them? Are you going to take those opportunities to share the good news when they come? Um, So that's why it's a dangerous prayer, because if you say, God, give me opportunities, and then he starts giving them, and every time he gives one, you're like, oh, no, not going to happen. You're going to find yourself perhaps in a bit of a trouble spot, but God will meet you there too. So that's my challenge to you, is to pray in those two directions and then start taking those steps. And I do, we are going to have prayer teams available up here to pray with you in those things. 
The reason for that is twofold. Thinking about the people in your life who don't know Jesus, that can be very emotional. It's not always an easy thing. That can be people who are really close to you, who you've tried to talk to them about Jesus. And if that's where you're, and whether or not that's where you're at, we will pray with you over the people in your life. That's great. But if that's a hard thing for you, especially, come and get prayer. The other thing to say is that as you're thinking about what stops you, that too can be really, that can be scary, those kind of things. And, and praying that prayer of asking God for opportunities, that in itself can be hard. And so you may need support in those places. And if that's you, come and receive prayer. So at this point, I'm going to invite the prayer teams forward. And if you want to come down and receive prayer, great. And I'm going to invite the worship team to come up to lead us in worship in that same time and uh, leave you to think and pray over these things as we do these activities together.